Hello and welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. I'm joined today by Deb Kilpatrick, co-CEO and executive chair at Evidation. We're going to talk a little bit about what Evidation does in the pharma space, uh, in the healthcare space more generally, and about what uh, they've learned about real-world data and real-world evidence. Welcome to the show, Deb. Oh, thanks so much, Jonah. It's my pleasure to be here. And uh, it was great to see you at JP Morgan and uh, great to great to hear your voice here on this podcast. Yeah, likewise. We had a lovely uh, long chat at JPM um, that, that was not for, that uh, wasn't on the record or anything. So that we haven't done anything with it, um, but I'm hoping to replicate some of that here and, uh, and give our audience a little bit of insight into who you guys are and what you do. Um, I think, as I said, when we met in January, um, I, I think Evidation was very ahead of the curve when it comes to um, uh, how we're thinking of health data now and, and real world data and, and collecting um, data from folks using mobile devices as well as other, other means. Um, and now that that's, I think, a little more in vogue, you guys are really have quite an operation. So, so in case folks aren't familiar, talk to me a little bit about Evidation. Um, what you do, uh, what are all the pieces and how do they fit together? Awesome. Thanks, Jonah. And uh, happy to happy to do that. Um, so at Evidation, we always say our mission is to create new ways to measure and improve health in everyday life. And we do this across a wide variety of conditions and diseases and therapeutic areas. Uh, and we have pharma as a primary uh, customer and partner, which is, I'm sure, part of the, the big interest of your, of your audience here. And the reason that we do this is because everyday health experiences are the ones that traditionally have been invisible to the system, right? Because most of our lives are not spent as patients. Most of our lives are just spent as people in the world. And sometimes we're inside the clinic, but most of the time we're not. And that means there are missed opportunities to actually measure health more fully and, and hopefully improve it via those measurements. And at Evidation, our secret sauce really involves the leveraging of person-generated health data, or PGHD, you may hear me refer to it as, and refining that into new measures of health in the context of, of daily living. And we're extremely excited about what we do. You'll probably hear that in my voice. And I appreciate you saying that, that we were ahead of the curve because I can tell you when we were talking about this and began talking about this a decade ago, we did get a lot of blank stares. <laughs> and um, I, I, I'm proud to say we, we don't get blank stares anymore. And so we're, we're excited to tell you more uh, today on the podcast. Can you give me just an example of of what a typical project would look like, uh, this kind of PGHD in, in action? Sure, sure. In fact, a, a, a very public example uh, is our work on what's known as the Heartline Trial. And the Heartline Trial is an effort sponsored by Johnson & Johnson in conjunction with Apple. And Evidation is the tech and operations layer in the middle. And what we're doing is it's, it's a multi-armed, randomized, pragmatic real-world trial to try and really understand what the best sort of patient flow or workflow would be in the context of a daily life and PGHD that a person is generating in order to identify the people who very likely do have true atrial fibrillation and should likely be on uh, antithrombotics for stroke prevention. And the, the arms of that multi-arm trial are, are really you know, rife with all this type of new real-world data that you're describing. It's data from watches. It's data from phones 
phones. It's patient reported data through digitally delivered surveys through the phone. And we're really trying to identify what is the what is the optimal path to get people who should be on antithrombotics because they have uh, stroke risk due to AFib on antithrombotics because they have stroke risk due to AFib. And the first step of that is really about, you know, looking at people in the real world and and the data that's being used to holistically characterize their health day to day and use that as the triggers to get them into the system at the right time. So for a study like that, who is the sponsor or the stakeholder who's, you know, who's putting up the, the resources to do it? Is it a pharma company or or is this like an academic situation? In the case of Heartline, it's it's being conducted uh, by Johnson and Johnson and Apple, and so Johnson and Johnson's interest, of course, is they uh, make antithrombotics, and uh, which is first line prevention uh, measure for for people who are at risk of stroke due to atrial fibrillation. Um, Apple's interest is because they have AFib and arrhythmia notifications on the Apple Watch as one of their you know primary health sort of modules, uh, and so there there's a great deal of interest on both sides of that, and we care deeply about it um, because it's part and parcel to what we do, right? It's it's about characterization of health status uh, using these types of new real world data and being able to use that in a way to measure health differently and use those measurements as a way to make sure people are getting the right care at the right time in this really sort of precision way. Uh, and so it, it's really a, a meeting of, of all three of these, these uh, collaborators and entities, but it is sponsored by Apple and Johnson & Johnson. When you work with pharma companies generally, um, how how do you fit into the sort of typical relationship structure of you know sponsor, CRO, tech vendor, or or is it kind of outside of that more more traditional sort of clinical research framework? Actually, it's it's a, it's a great question. Um, said another way, sort of what. What hats do we wear? What roles do we play in those types of relationships? And I would say it, it's, it varies based on the product offering. Um, so for pharma, we have sort of uh, different types of, uh, in the context of your question, research offerings. We do a lot of longitudinal observational studies, uh, and we do a lot of registries as well that are also very often multi-year, very large scale. Generally, what we are doing is studying uh people who may or may not have a given condition, may or may not be on therapy, but in the context of post-approval research, phase four, real-world evidence generation. In some cases, we are purely the tech layer. In some cases, we are the tech layer and the operations layer, which you may see from, um, you know, sort of a digital or decentralized trial CRO. Um, In some cases, we may even have an evidation advisor or researcher who who is the PI. Um, So it it can take very different, uh, we sort of wear very different hats, Jonah, depending on the nature of the the engagement. Uh, But that gives you a sense of the kinds of, of, of activities we play. I would say one of our one of our newer offerings that we began uh, working with pharma on last year is a research research recruitment offering, and so that's sort of identification of community members in the evidation connected population that may be eligible to enroll in other people's decentralized or digital studies, and that's been something that is a very exciting uh, way for us to give value back to our members and also provide value to pharma by allowing them to access people at scale in a given therapeutic area very very efficiently. Um, and in those roles, you know, we're purely the vendor in that case. 
So that's a great segue because I really wanted to talk about the the front end of this too for for the consumer, right? You know, for the the patient isn't the right word, but the the person who's who's providing their data, the data donor almost. Um, how how do you bring those folks in? How, how do you? But well, one, like, what's the value prop for them? But two, how do you deal with some of the issues that come up around privacy and trust and and you know making making people feel like they're they're being treated right? Sure. Uh, well, just like we do our best to show up with you know scientific rigor and credibility for our enterprise uh, customers and partners in the pharma channel. You know, I, I think that it's perfectly reasonable for individuals and consumers to expect us to show up to them in a way that they expect in the context of their daily life. And this gets, you know, very much to the question you're asking around, you know, what are, what are the incentives? Why should they do it? And how do we give them control over things like privacy and consent and data permissioning? Um, when we invite someone to participate in an evidation study or program, you can bet there's a reason why. There's a very good chance that it will be related to something that person can cares about, is dealing with, and will be eligible for, or very likely to be eligible for, based on what they've told us about themselves. And that's one big way that we earn trust. Um, The reason we keep trust over time is more in our approach to privacy controls, data permissioning, and consent for participation. For example, we match the permissioning and consent to the specifics of the use case. We don't really do generic blanket consents up front when they join the evidation ecosystem, which is what most tech companies do, right? We just we just don't do that. Um, we're very serious about this and have taken very public stances, including at the NIH, um, over the last decade on these matters. Um, as to the incentive structure, you know, we we do ask. Um, we do have a belief that if you do something, you should get something. And for some people, that's something that, that they care about is actually being paid for data permissioning into our ecosystem or being paid for participation uh, in a clinical study or in an evidation observational study or program. And, and that's, that's done on a routine basis. Um, we do know from our own market research and our community from asking them that many people are motivated less by the money and motivated more by the opportunity to participate in a research ecosystem that they never had access to before. I mean, I think traditionally the the percentage of U.S. adults that have participated in some kind of trial or observational study or registry is like less than far less than 10 percent. At one at one point, it was less than 5 percent. Um, I think that's changing pretty rapidly now. But, you know, it's it's not uncommon for us to have participants from all 50 states, from 90% of U.S. zip codes, and from all kinds of educational and socioeconomic backgrounds. And so we we believe that we have to provide a, a, you know, different types of value. For some people, that's monetary. And for some people, that's sort of participation or more altruistic value. That's a very, very um, interesting and complete answer. I I did want to call attention to one thing you said, which was, you know, that that you, you have a, a purpose-built agreement for every every time you engage someone for their data, not, not a boilerplate. Um, right. Which is really interesting because there's a downside to that, right? I mean, it, it means that you, you aren't in the business of building databases. You're not like a, you know, a lead gen or anything like you, you don't have like a big database of patients and people pay you for the data and you pull out that data and, and give it to them. Everything has to be kind of bespoke. You really are like setting up studies and that's the product. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. We we do not the, where we are different from, you know, what most 
uh, people would say is the sort of real world data or real world evidence um, group of companies where we are very different is that we are um, not just in the business of you know, selling, uh, you know, sort of de-identified data sets that everybody has the same access to, and they're just sort of putting it on their analytics layer and, and churning out, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever data set somebody's asking for. Not to say that those things don't have value for things like hypothesis generation. Um, uh, but in our case, we really believe that the value is in the access to the individuals who are themselves permissioning data for the purposes of characterizing health differently. So we don't, we don't, we, we have a very different business model. And, and, you, and you see that in the way we talk about our sort of use case specific consents, our use case specific um, permissioning of data. And, and so, yes, in that sense, uh, it, it, is, it is bespoke in that sense. Uh, Jonah, that's a, that's, a, that's a fair way to describe it. Yeah, but I think that's really great. I mean, I think in this world that we live in where our data is such a valuable thing, you know, the idea of a of a data broker is is kind of a it makes people very uncomfortable, mm-hmm. maybe it should, you know. So to move away from that and to say like we're partners with yes, we're partners with pharma companies, we're also partnering with you. Correct. You know, to to create kind of a win-win situation. I think that's a really um positive way to think about about this whole ecosystem going forward, which which sort of makes for a good segue to talk um, uh, uh, not just about evidation, but about kind of the trends that as you're in kind of a unique position to, to see. Um, we talked about how you guys have been at this for 10 years. You're not getting the blank looks anymore. But <laughs> what have you seen in that time uh, in terms of how industry is thinking about this this real world data, you know, this person generated data? Um, over that time and through COVID and everything. Yeah, maybe I should, um, even before answering that question, Jonah, sort of level set the way we see the data universe of evidation, because, you know, you've heard me talk about the person-generated hemisphere. There's a system-generated hemisphere, right? And, And we see those two sort of hemispheres as really being the complete characterization when they come together of, of, of our, of our modern definition of, of health characterization. Right. And, you know, so to the heart of your question, let's start with the fact that unlike 10 years ago, um, it is, it is widely recognized now that person generated health data has a very important role to play in characterizing health in the real world, in the context of our everyday life. So our view of human health is just simply put no longer limited to being episodic based on when we happen to be in a clinic setting. That's kind of huge. Like when you stand back from it and look back again, 10 years ago, it's, it's very, very important. Um, and I, some might say like revolutionary versus evolutionary thing. But beyond that, it's becoming clear that the system generated data, sort of this other hemisphere of the data universe that's coming from within the clinic walls it's finally being freed and accessible by individuals thanks to a lot of policy change and a lot of tech layers and a lot of companies that are, you know, trying to crack that nut. And, you know, if you look at just Medicare, just look at Medicare for a second, Medicare patients themselves can access and permission their own claims history. Thanks to blue button 2.0. It's it's pretty revolutionary, right? When you think about it. And, And so then the third leg of the stool in my mind is, um, of, of this kind of change over the last decade is that 
because person-generated and system-generated data can now be permissioned by the individual as the common denominator who owns it, we have the ability to capture and characterize health status over time with extremely high resolution, right? And so when you stand back from that, it's kind of remarkable that we're almost to the point in the real world data or real world evidence space that we're almost kind of taking it for granted because it seems so obvious that we should be able to do this, but it's quite technically complex. And again, just seven, 10 years ago, we could barely imagine what we would be capable of doing now. And, you know, I, I think to me, that's the sort of arc of tr- arc of change and in, in the most important trends that, that we've seen over the last decade. Whenever someone says that, you know, th- 10 years ago, we could not imagine where we'd be now. It just always makes me think, well, where are we going to be in 10 years then? <laughs> I mean, Generative AI, what? that's that's the answer, Jonah, to all questions about where we're going to be in 10 years. <laughs> so, it, so it seems in the news anyway. Well, but let's talk about AI. Do you guys use AI in, already? I'm sure in some ways. What are kind of the good and bad uses of AI in, in this space? Yeah, so we'll, we I will distinguish between AI and machine learning because we, we see them we see them very differently and, you know, to, to put it all out there for the data scientists who are listening right now, please know that I am not a data scientist. My PhD is in mechanical engineering and bioengineering, not data science. So um, uh, that said, that disclaimer out there, you know, Evidations data scientists would say that machine learning has been quietly disrupting things for a while with far less hype than AI. Um, for example, um, we have a product that uh, is running currently on the platform uh, called FluSmart, and it is a nationally running program, and it's a program that's designed to passively detect individuals highly likely to be infected based on the person-generated data patterns that we see. And we're able to do that. We're able to sort of see something, do something in such a fast time frame that it enables us to help that person take action. For example, getting into a trial for new vaccines, getting into a trial for new antivirals, getting on therapy fast enough that it actually can have impact. And we're running this right now. We have about 180,000 people um, on one of these sort of flu smart uh, products running right now. That runs on a machine learning backbone, as do so many of our algorithms for COVID and detection of other, let's call them event-driven conditions or event-driven, you know, uh, health health characterizations. Um, To read more about this, we've actually just published a paper with BARDA on leveraging this kind of ML methodology for precision recruitment, um, especially for COVID-19 research, in showing that we can use these methods to yield a four to seven times higher incidence rate of the right patients being targeted versus traditional approaches. So you're literally able to use machine learning-based methodologies to concentrate the number of people in the trial who actually are going to be in the arm where you want to see the events. That's that's really important. It's really important, not just for infectious disease research, but for many other conditions as well. AI is another matter. And, you know, the healthcare sector, I think, is still very early with regard to how AI is going to impact health data use cases in particular, since that's kind of what we're talking about here. And, you know, I sort of say we're at the magical moment where anything is possible, but any asymmetric risk uh, that might actually be there hasn't yet been exposed. <laughs> so we're sort of in that magical moment where we can all, you know, imagine uh, many different things. And, if the past is prologue in technology adoption in healthcare, 
The biggest roles for true AI in the immediate term, I think, are going to land where the impact of being wrong does actually ha- has essentially no risk of causing harm to patients, like AI-driven data platforms for product lifecycle management or Salesforce efficiency, and of course, you know, AI platforms for discovery of new uh, druggable targets. Um, a big thing we learned in the genomic data revolution, which was, you know, think about it when that when the gen- genome was sequenced in 2006, you know, we spent a solid decade just sort of getting our feet wet about what to do with that new technology and information. What we found is that use cases where the new technology or new genomic-based technology could enable physicians to do things they could not do before or treat patients they could not treat before were often going to be the most aggressively adopted. And I think that's probably going to come into play again. Um, All that said, you know, my personal view is that the real complexity or one area of real complexity that's going to have to unfold here in the realm of AI use in the health data space is going to be around regulatory pathways and regulatory labeling. I mean, think about it. Not not all company or product AI engines are going to be made equal any more than all manufacturing plants are. And so this could get very hard very fast in the in the sort of regulatory realm of labeling or product product uh, product sourcing and labeling. So I think it's going to be fascinating and interesting to, to see where that goes. Yeah. And I mean, it's not a podcast about AI, so we won't go too deep. There's so much we could talk about <laughs> yeah. around a lot of the stuff that you mentioned. I, I think the no harm standard is a little bit of an AI soapbox for me because the, the standard should be less harm than a comparable human. Fair. Right? Yep. Fair. And, and, and that's a kind of low bar, depending on what you're talking about. Yeah. That's totally fair, John. And well said. So one thing that occurs to me is as we are moving into this age of AI, it, you know, there, there's the garbage in, garbage out problem. And, and AI is only as good as the data sets it draws on, right. uh, which really brings us back to sort of where is our data coming from? What is our data in healthcare? And, and as you know, a lot of the historic large sets of healthcare data are plagued with problems um, it, about the way they were collected um, that can lead to, to bias in, in what any kind of AI would do with them, right? Like right. the samples were not diverse. They, they were not representative. So to bring it back around to what you do, uh, how do you make sure that when you're collecting data uh, that you're, it's really reflective of, of the, the population it's meant to be measuring in, in any, in every way that is, that could matter. Right. Mm -hmm. So this, this, uh, thank you for asking that. I think it's an incredibly important uh, thing for us all to be discussing and thinking about. And, you know, if you, if you go back to Evidation's business model and our foundational principles of on one side of our platform, we connect to individuals and permission data. And on the other side of our platform, we connect to um, our enterprise global customers. And in the case we're talking about here, our global pharma partners. In the case where we, it all for us has to start and stop uh, with regard to diversity of the source of the data and, and richness and uh, you know, rich characterization of, of, of the data itself has to start and stop with who are we getting it from and how are we you know, tapping into to individuals and, and populations with certain conditions. Um, Evidation today has a community of about 5 million people. They are uh, geographically diverse in that they are representing about nine out of every 10 U.S. ZEP codes in all 50 states. Um, We've spent a lot of time over the last several years 
working on therapeutic area diversity. And we cover about 35 to 40 different therapeutic areas, um, you know, therapeutic area kind of drug, call them drug classes or therapeutic area categories. Um, our, our female to male split is usually, you know, I'll call it 55, 45 female to male, maybe 60, 40, depending on, you know, depending on when you look at the data. And our, our gender or sorry, sorry, ethnic uh, or racial diversity, we've always tried to tune to be representative of sort of census level demographics. And I would say we're better in some categories in that than others, but it's something that we're, we're very, very serious about. In the cases where we're actually doing our own studies of coming, you know, the communities are coming, people in communities are, are enrolling directly from evidation to be enrolled in an evidation study, we can balance those cohorts very easily, whether we're balancing it on gender, race, ethnicity, whether we're balancing it on socioeconomic um, uh, dem- or demographic principles, whether we're, ba- you know, trying to you know, balance it on ed- educational levels, like we're completely in control of that and look through that lens in generally everything we do. Um, it's a journey sometimes to make sure that our customers or our partners are actually on that on that road with us. You know, for example, if we're going to recruit 100,000 people uh, for an infectious disease study over the next, say, three weeks, um, I got to make sure that I'm that I'm explaining to my to my pharma partner that, you know, maybe we should take five weeks, not three weeks and make sure it's a fully balanced cohort in terms of racial demographics or ethnic demographics. Um, I would say that conversation is pretty common now. Um, I won't say it's 100 percent in terms of the, you know, the reciprocity and the agreement to do that every single time. But I will say it's, it's very, very common. And that just isn't something that that we were taught to people weren't coming to us asking for that 10 years ago. So I view that as a, as a massive victory and a massive um, a thing for all patients everywhere, because it means that we're better balancing the cohorts that end up in trials, whether they're in clinical development or whether they're in post-approval research so that we actually can deeply understand what therapeutics are actually going to work best in what, what cohorts and what the real world effectiveness or efficacy gap may be so that we don't find it out on the back end. Um, so that, that gives you a little bit of a sense of like how we view um, sort of the, let's call it the data diversity problem, because we actually, it actually starts with a population diversity challenge. That's a great answer. We're getting close to the end. There's one more thing I wasn't even planning to ask about, but I think you might have an interesting perspective on this. So give it a try. Um, one of the things that's come up a lot in my conversations about the future of clinical trials is the notion that the whole concept of a control group mm. could be radically changed in, in the future, if not eliminated, uh, because we can use data um, in place of a control and because a control group is kind of a bum deal when you're talking about, uh, you know, potentially life-saving right. treatment. So what do you think about that? And, and is, is that kind of on your radar at all as you construct these studies? Uh, it is in the sense that, um, you know, we've had many, many discussions uh, at Evidation and with our research partners around, you know, what is synthetic, what is synthetic data controls? What do they look like? Um, what do those data sets need to um, sort of aspire to be uh, in the future? And one, one, our approach to that would, would be based on a foundation that we are able to longitudinally connect to people for years 
in the context of their everyday health, in the context of very specific therapeutic areas, in the context of whether they are on or off therapy. And again, going back to our prior question, you know, in the context of having as broad a swath of diversity as we possibly can. And one of the reasons that at Evidation, we believe that longitudinal connectivity is important is if synthetic controls ever become like widely accepted, I think they're going to rely on longitudinal characterization. It's not just going to be a three-month snapshot where nobody was connected before and nobody was connected after. I think you could take a three-month slice out of a three-year um, you know, data characterization or health characterization of an individual. But we don't always know when we start out what, what three months are going to matter, right? Um, and so I think when we talk about synthetic controls um, uh, um, or other types of synthetic data, in that sense, I'm all I'm all for that for the exactly the reasons that, that you suggest in your question. But I think what's going to be important is that we actually have holistic characterization of health over long periods of time to be able to know that we have confidence that what we're trying to model as a control is actually replicated by that experience. Yeah, well said. It's it's a lot more complicated in in practice than it yes. is in theory. Absolutely. I, I, I 100% agree with you. So any other final thoughts or anything you'd like to talk about we haven't talked about yet we can cover in, I don't know, a few minutes? I think we've, I think we've hit a lot. I, I'll say, um, you know, maybe as a, as a closing salvo, Jonah, I would say I think we're in a new era. And I know everybody says that, you know, but I, but I mean, I, I, I really believe we're, we're in a moment where the full power of person-generated health data and more holistic health characterization is gonna is really gonna become not not the exception in the real world data space, but the norm, because I think it allows us with uh, with really unprecedented power and longitudinality to a characterize disease in the lived experience to have them or have it. B, um, enable the right individuals to participate in decentralized research and tech-enabled health programs, and, and C, to generate a new type of real-world evidence and proof of product impact at any scale. And I think those three things are not hypothetical. They are happening right now, and we couldn't say that three years, I mean, 10 years ago. And so I do believe we're in a new area of health characterization where it is undeniable that the role of uh, the data that we all as individuals generate in our daily lives and permission is going to have a big role. And so that's my, that's my closing salvo, Jonah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Deb. This has been a really interesting conversation. And I'm so glad you were able to join us. Thank you so much, Jonah. I, I really enjoy uh, the content and uh, that, you, that you guys always write about and put out on your podcast. And I appreciate that you've given us a chance to participate in it. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at Pharma Forum. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.